0: PART 75 OF THE CHRONICLES OF CRIME, VOLUME One, BY CAMDEN PELHAM. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. PART 75. JOHN BELLINGHAM. EXECUTED FOR THE MURDER OF THE RIGHT HON. SPENCER PERCIVAL. PART 2. The first witness called on the part of the Crown was Mr. William Smith, M.P. for Norwich, who, being sworn, deposed as follows. He was on his way to attend the House of Commons on the evening of Monday, the 11th of May, and was going through the lobby towards the door of the house, when he heard the report of a pistol, which appeared to have been fired close to the entrance door of the lobby. Immediately on the report he turned towards the place from whence the noise appeared to proceed, and observed a tumult, and probably a dozen or more persons, about the spot. Almost in the same instant he saw a person rush hastily from among the crowd, and heard several voices cry out, shut the doors, let no one escape. The person came towards him from the crowd, looking first one way, then another, rather like one seeking for shelter than the person wounded, but taking two or three steps towards the witness, he reeled by him, and almost instantaneously fell on the floor, with his face downward. Before he fell... Witness heard him cry, though not very distinctly, and in what he uttered he heard the word murder, or something very like it. When he first fell, Witness thought that he might have been slightly wounded, and expected to see him make an effort to rise, but gazing on him for a few moments, he observed that he did not stir at all, and he therefore immediately stooped down to raise him from the ground, requesting the assistance of a gentleman close by him for the purpose." as soon as they had turned his face upwards, and not till then he found that it was Mr. Percival. They then took him into their arms and carried him into the office of the Speaker's secretary, where they seated themselves on the table, with Mr. Percival between them, also sitting on the table and resting on their arms. His face was now perfectly pale, the blood issuing in small quantities from each corner of his mouth, and probably in two or three minutes from the firing of the pistol all signs of life had ceased. The eyes of the unfortunate gentleman were open, but he did not appear to know witness, nor to take any notice of any person about him, nor did he utter the least articulate sound from the moment he fell. A few convulsive sobs, which lasted perhaps three or four moments, together with scarcely a perceptible pulse, were the only signs of life which appeared then, and those continued but a very short time longer, and when Witness felt Mr. Percival's pulse for the last time, just before Mr. Lynn, the surgeon, arrived, it appeared to him that he was quite dead. Witness remained supporting the body until it was conveyed into the Speaker's house, but he was unable to give any account of what passed in the lobby. Mr. William Lynn, a surgeon in Great George Street, deposed that he was called to the deceased but on his arrival he was quite dead. There was blood upon his white waistcoat and shirt, and upon his examining the body he found that there was an opening in the skin. He probed the wound three inches downwards, and entertained no doubt that the pistol-ball passed into the heart and was the cause of death. Mr. Henry Burgess, a solicitor who was in the lobby, stated that after having seen Mr. Percival fall, as had already been described, he heard some one exclaim, "'That's the man!' and saw a hand pointing towards the bench by the fireplace, which is on one side of the lobby. He immediately went over to the bench and saw the prisoner at the bar, sitting on it in great agitation. There were one or two persons by him. He looked at his hands and saw his left hand on the bench, and near or under his other hand he saw a pistol, which he took, and asked the prisoner what had induced him to do such a deed. He replied, "'Want of redress of grievances, and refusal by government,' or words to that effect. Witness then said to the prisoner, "'You have another pistol?' He replied, "'Yes.' Witness asked if it was loaded, to which he answered in the affirmative. Witness then saw some person take the other pistol from his person. THE PISTOL WHICH WITNESS TOOK FROM THE PRISONER WAS WARM, AND APPEARED AS IF IT HAD BEEN RECENTLY DISCHARGED. THE LOCK WAS DOWN, AND THE PAN OPEN. HERE THE PISTOL WAS PRODUCED AND RECOGNIZED BY THE WITNESS. HE THEN STATED THAT HE PUT HIS HAND INTO THE RIGHT WAISTCOAT POCKET OF THE PRISONER, FROM WHICH HE TOOK A SMALL penknife AND A PENCIL, AND FROM HIS LEFT-HAND WAISTCOAT POCKET HE TOOK A BUNCH OF KEYS AND SOME MONEY. The prisoner was detained in custody, and examined shortly afterwards above stairs in the House of Commons, before the magistrates. Witness related, in the presence of the prisoner, on that occasion, the facts which he had now detailed. When he had concluded, the prisoner made an observation to this effect, as well as he could recollect. I wish to correct Mr. Burgess's statement in one point, but I believe he is perfectly correct in every other instead of my hand being as mr burgess stated upon or near the pistol i think he took it from my hand or upon it james taylor a tailor at number eleven north place Inn lane deposed that he had been employed by the prisoner to repair some clothes he was afterwards in guildford street when the prisoner called him and took him to his lodgings in Millman street and there directed him to put a side pocket into a coat which he gave him of a particular length which he pointed out he completed the job on the same night and carried the coat home mr john morris stated that he often attended in the gallery appropriated for strangers and went down to the house on monday the eleventh of may for that purpose he passed into the lobby about the hour of five in the afternoon he observed the prisoner at the bar standing in the lobby near the outer door he was standing beside that part of the door which is generally closed it was a double door and one half was usually closed within which half the prisoner was standing and any one to have entered the lobby must have passed him at arm's length he observed the prisoner as if watching for somebody coming and he appeared to look anxiously towards the door as well as the witness recollected the prisoner had his right hand within the left breast of his coat witness passed on to the staircase of the gallery and almost immediately after he got into the upper lobby he heard the report of a pistol and found soon after that it was connected with the fatal event which occurred on that evening he had frequently seen the prisoner before in the gallery where gentlemen who reported the parliamentary proceedings resorted and about the passages of the House of Commons. John Vickery, a Bow Street officer, said that he went on Monday afternoon to New Millman Street, to the lodgings of the prisoner, which he searched, and found in the bedroom, upstairs, a pair of pistol-bags, and in the same drawer a small powder-flask, and some powder in small paper, a box with some bullets, and some small flints wrapped in paper. There was also a pistol-key to unscrew the pistol for the purpose of loading, and some sandpaper and a pistol mould. The witness on comparing the bullet, found in the loaded pistol with the mould, and the screw with the pistols, found them all to correspond. Mr. Vincent George Dowling was next called. He stated that he was in the gallery on the afternoon in question, and ran down into the lobby on hearing the report of a pistol. He saw the prisoner at the bar sitting on a stool, and going to him he seized him and began to search his person. He took from his left hand, small clothes-pocket, a small pistol which he produced, and which on his examining it he found to be loaded with powder and ball. It was primed as well as loaded. The pistol which had been discharged, and that which he took from the prisoner, were in his belief a brace, they were of the same size and bore, and were marked with the same maker's name. The witness had seen the prisoner several times before in the gallery, and in the avenues of the house and to the best of his recollection, the last time he saw him was six or seven days before the death of Mr. Percival. He was frequently in the gallery during the debates, and upon several occasions entered into conversation with the witness. He had often asked for information as to the names of the gentlemen speaking, and also as to the persons of the members of His Majesty's Government. Other witnesses from Newgate produced the coat worn by the prisoner at the time of his apprehension, and it was identified by the tailor as the same into which he had put the side-pocket. Lord Chief Justice Mansfield then addressed the prisoner, and told him that the case of the part of the Crown being now gone through, the period was come for him to make any defence he might wish to offer. The prisoner asked whether his counsel had nothing to urge in his defence. Mr. Alley informed him that his counsel were not entitled to speak. The prisoner then said that the documents and papers necessary to his defence had been taken out of his pocket, and had not since been restored to him. Mr. Garrow said that it was the intention of the counsel for the Crown to restore him these papers, having first proved them to be the same which were taken from him, and had not suffered any subtraction, and that his solicitor already had copies of them. General Gascoigne and Mr. Hume, M.P. for Weymouth, proved that the papers were those which had been taken from the person of the prisoner, and that they had been in their custody ever since, and had suffered no subtraction. The papers were then handed to the prisoner, who proceeded to arrange and examine them. The prisoner, who had been hitherto sitting, now rose, and bowing respectfully to the court and jury, went into his defence, in a firm tone of voice, and without any appearance of embarrassment. He spoke, nearly, to the following effect. I feel a great personal obligation to the Attorney General for the objection which he has made to the plea of insanity. I think it is far more fortunate that such a plea as that should have been unfounded, than that it should have existed in fact. I am obliged to my counsel, however, for having thus endeavoured to consult my interest, As I am convinced the attempt has arisen from the kindest motives. That I am or have been insane is a circumstance of which I am not apprised, except in the single instance of my having been confined in Russia. How far that may be considered as affecting my present situation, it is not for me to determine. This is the first time that I have ever spoken in public in this way, I feel my own incompetency, but I trust you will attend to the substance rather than to the manner of my investigating the truth of an affair which has occasioned my presence at this bar. I beg to assure you that the crime which I have committed has arisen from compulsion rather than from any hostility to the man whom it has been my fate to destroy, considering the amiable character and universally admitted virtues of mr percival i feel if i could murder him in a cool and unjustifiable manner i should not deserve to live another moment in this world conscious however that i should be able to justify everything which i have done i feel some degree of confidence in meeting the storm which assails me and shall now proceed to unfold a catalogue of circumstances which while they harrow upon my own soul will, I am sure, tend to the extenuation of my conduct in this Honourable Court. This, as has already been candidly stated by the Attorney-General, is the first instance in which any the slightest imputation has been cast upon my moral character. Until this fatal catastrophe, which no one can more heartily regret than I do, not excepting even the family of Mr. Percival himself, I have stood alike pure in the minds of those who have known me and in the judgment of my own heart. I hope I see this affair in the true light. For eight years, gentlemen of the jury, have I been exposed to all the miseries which it is possible for human nature to endure. Driven almost to despair, I sought for redress in vain. For this affair I had the carte blanche of government, as I will prove by the most incontestable evidence, namely the writing of the Secretary of State himself. I come before you under peculiar disadvantages. Many of my most material papers are now in Liverpool, for which I have written, but I have been called upon my trial before it was possible to obtain an answer to my letter. Without witnesses, therefore, and in the absence of many papers necessary to my justification, I am sure you will admit I have just grounds for claiming some indulgence. I must state that after my voyage to Archangel I transmitted to His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, through Mr. Windle, my solicitor, a petition, and in consequence of there being no reply, I came to London to see the result. Surprised at the delay, and conceiving that the interests of my country were at stake, I considered this step as essential, as well as for the assertion of my own right, as for the vindication of the national honour. I waited upon Colonel McMahon, who stated that my petition, had been received but owing to some accident had been mislaid. Under these circumstances I drew out another account of the particulars of the Russian affair, and this may be considered the commencement of that train of events which led to the afflicting and unhappy fate of Mr. Percival. The prisoner then read various documents containing the statement, the whole of his affairs in Russia, and in the course of narrating these hardships took occasion to explain several points, adverting with great feeling to the unhappy situation in which he was placed, from the circumstance of his having been lately married to his wife, then about twenty years of age, with an infant at her breast, and who had been waiting for him at St. Petersburg, in order that she might accompany him to England, a prey to all those anxieties which the unexpected and cruel incarceration of her husband, without any just grounds, was calculated to excite. Here he was much affected. He also described his feelings at a subsequent period, when his wife, from an anxiety to reach her native country, England, when in a state of pregnancy, and looking to the improbability of his liberation, was obliged to quit Petersburg unprotected, and undertake the voyage at the peril of her life, while Lord L. Gower and Sir S. Sharp suffered him to remain in the situation worse than death my god my god he exclaimed what heart could bear such excruciating tortures without bursting with indignation at conduct so diametrically opposite to justice and to humanity i appeal to you gentlemen of the jury as men i appeal to you as brothers i appeal to you as christians whether under such circumstances of persecution it was possible to regard the actions of the ambassador and consul of my own country with any other feelings but those of detestation and horror. In using language thus strong, I feel that I commit an error, yet does my heart tell me that towards men who lent themselves thus to bolster up the basest acts of persecution, there are no observations, however strong, which the strict justice of the case would not excuse my using." Had I been so fortunate as to have met Lord Levison Gower instead of that truly amiable and highly lamented individual Mr Percival, he is the man who should have received the ball. The prisoner then went on to state that on his coming to England he had represented his hardships to the Marquis Wellesley, from whose secretary he received the following answer Foreign Office january thirty first, eighteen ten. Sir, I am directed by the Marquis Wellesley to transmit to you the papers which you sent to his office accompanied by your letter of the twenty-seventh of last month, and I am to inform you that His Majesty's Government is precluded from interfering in the support of your case, in some measure by the circumstances of the case itself, and entirely so at the present moment by the suspension of intercourse with the Court of St. Petersburg. I am, etc., signed Culling Charles Smith. I would beg to know, he continued, what course it was possible for me, after receiving this letter, to pursue. If His Majesty's Government thus refuse me redress, what must be my next step? The only thing I could do was to bring a serious charge against Sir Stephen Sherp and Lord Leveson, Gower, which I accordingly did, by addressing a complete statement of my case to the Privy Council, from whom I received the following answer. Council Office, Whitehall, May sixteenth, 1810. Sir, I am directed by the Lords of the Council to acquaint you, that their Lordships, having taken into consideration your petition on the subject of your arrest in Russia, do not find that it is a matter in which their Lordships can, in any manner, interfere. I am, sir, etc. W. Faulkner. Having then understood that any remuneration which I might conceive myself entitled to, I could only procure through the medium of Parliament, I applied myself to several members of Parliament to ascertain what line of conduct I ought to pursue in order to obtain that desirable end. These gentlemen told me that I should make application to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, thus petitioning, for leave, to bring in a petition upon a subject which— being well founded became a matter of right, and not of favour. In consequence, however, of this advice, I did write a letter to Mr. Percival, from whom I received an answer, dated Downing Street, 27th of May, 1810, as follows. Sir, I am desired by Mr. Percival to state to you, in reply to your letter of yesterday, that the time for presenting private petitions has long since passed, and that mr percival cannot encourage you to expect his sanction in introducing into the house a petition which mr percival thinks is not of a nature for the consideration of parliament i am etc Thomas brooksbank i apprehend however that this information is not founded in fact if i am wrong i see several gentlemen round me connected with the house of commons who will set me right that there is no particular time limited for the presentation of private petitions and that they might be brought forward at any period of the session. I am inclined to think the usages of the House will permit. The latter clause of Mr. Percival's letter, which states that my claims are not of a nature for the consideration of Parliament, appears to me inexplicable. If they are not referred to that branch of the legislature, to whose consideration then ought they to be submitted. Yet thus was I bandied about from man to man, and from place to place suppose this had been the case with either of you gentlemen of the jury and that your sufferings had been equal to mine what would have been your feelings it is the duty of every individual to apply through the proper channel for redress and through what other channel ought you to apply but through the heads of government upon this occasion however those whose duty it was to have redressed my grievances treated them with indifference, and were deaf to the dictated of justice. In consequence of this denial on the part of Mr. Percival to investigate a business in which the National Honour was concerned, I was left at a loss how to act, or what cause to pursue. I therefore returned home, and remained inactive for nearly eighteen months, When finding that I could no longer hold up against the ruinous effect of those failures which were the consequence of the injustice with which I had been treated, every one coming upon me for that which I was unable to pay, and my family borne down by the deepest affliction at the distresses to which they were exposed, I found it necessary to renew my applications which I did to the Treasury, and submitted to them a petition, reiterating those claims I had so unsuccessfully made before. TO THIS APPLICATION I RECEIVED FOR ANSWER. TREASURY CHAMBERS, FEBRUARY twenty fourth, 1810 Sir, having laid before the Lords Commissioners of His Majesty's Treasury your petition of the sixteenth instant, submitting a statement of losses sustained by you in Russia, and praying relief, I am commanded by their Lordships to return to you the documents transmitted therewith, and to acquaint you that my Lords are not able to afford you any relief. I am, etc., George Harrison. I next made application to His Royal Highness the Prince Regent to have my affairs laid before Parliament, explaining anew the disgraceful conduct of the Consul and Ambassador at Russia, who, by suffering me to be so persecuted, had been guilty of an act which brought eternal disgrace on the country. Here he reads documents similar to the former, and repeated all the statements respecting the manner in which he had been treated in Russia. The answer I received was as follows. Whitehall, February 18th, 1812. Sir, I am directed by Mr. Secretary Ryder to acquaint you that your petition to His Royal Highness the Prince Regent has been referred by the command of His Royal Highness for the consideration of the Lords of His Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council. I am, etc., J. Beckett. After this I made application to the Privy Council office, and had communication with Lord Chetwynd and Mr. Duller the two clerks of that council, who informed me that I had nothing to expect from their decision. I then applied to know the reason in writing why the Privy Council declined to act in obedience to the instructions of His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, which request I was informed by Mr. Litchfield could not be complied with. Under these circumstances I communicated the whole to His Royal Highness, and enclosed to him a petition to be laid before Parliament. The petition was here read, and the answer of Mr. Becket, dated March ninth, 1812, stating that His Royal Highness had signified no commands thereupon, and returning the petition accordingly. So, baffled, he pursued, What could a man do? Reduced to the last extremity of distress, without having been guilty of a single political crime which could call for reprehension, here I was forced to the commission of that melancholy act. Bursting into tears, which I, as well as my country, have so sincerely to regret, my wife and my poor children crying for the means of existence, what alternative had I but to seek redress by some such dreadful act as that for which I have now to answer? His Majesty's ministers referring me backwards and forwards like a shuttlecock, without showing the slightest disposition even to regard my wrongs as deserving of the smallest consideration in duty to myself, I was forced to seek justice, and avenge my own cause. I was told I could not get my case before Parliament, without the sanction of His Majesty's Ministers. To General Gascoigne, for the politeness and attention with which he heard my statement, and the disposition he evinced to relieve me, were it in his power, I have to express my gratitude. He informed me, if any of His Majesty's Ministers would sanction my claims, and that I was able to authenticate but the particulars I had related, he should be happy to meet my wishes by laying my petition before the house. Supposing now that I should feel little difficulty in obtaining such sanction, and satisfied that by a journey to Liverpool I should be able to produce the documents which would fully establish the truth of every word I have uttered, I began to hope that the goal of my long-hoped-for wishes was now in view. I therefore directed a letter to Mr. Ryder, requesting the permission i understood to be essential to my purpose here however my expectations were again blasted and those flattering dreams of success which had filled my mind with joy were dashed for ever from my reach and this letter at once showed me that i had no justice to look for here he read the letter as follows whitehall march twentieth eighteen twelve I am directed by Mr. Secretary Ryder to acknowledge the receipt of your letter of the seventeenth instant, requesting permission, on the part of His Majesty's Ministers, to present your petition to the House of Commons, and in reply I am to acquaint you that you should address your application to the Right Honourable the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I am, etc., J. Beckett. At last, then, I was told I had nothing to expect, and was forced reluctantly to notice in a more determined manner the ill-treatment I had received. To this end, I enclosed the particulars of my case to the magistrate of Bow Street. The prisoner then read the letter which we have already given. End of Part 75